Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Are you not entertained? Hello, everyone, and welcome to... History and Technicolor with myself, David Crowther, and with me, Wolf O'Neill. Wolf O'Neill. Uh, Wolf, happy St. George's Day, for that is the day on which we are recording. Happy St. George's Day, David. Uh, how are you going to celebrate? I'm going to celebrate by having two friends over for supper who hate flag waving. So I have prepared a an avenue of St. George's flags for them just to make them feel at home. Wait. So you've wait. You've lined them up like through your house. Oh, so you've no to... idea. And I'm making little ha- flags on sticks uh, to give them at the door, so they have to wave them. Do you think they'll come back for dinner again? Mm, possibly. I think they'll see the humour of it. Uh, anyway, so that's how I'm going to celebrate. I'm also going to celebrate as I've done by posting on my, the Facebook site, Happy St George's Day, <clears throat> and I'm looking forward to the expected responses, of which there are three by and large number one is hey great thanks yes have a great day number two is huh the, the patron saint of georgia and genoa and greece you know and the third one is he was a cappadocian soldier who never came to england every year it's the same it is a blast and i love it so that is how i'm going to be celebrating how's about you i'm not going to be posting one of those three responses onto your group. Good. Um, and I will be going to work. So, oh, um, it. Well, you know. It's, it's so that other people can enjoy their St. George's Day. It is. Well, I sure... Maybe I'll... When you're going to work, maybe I'll send you little photographs of me having a great time lying around doing bugger all just to keep you happy. It, can you record your friends arriving and seeing all of the flags? <laughs> maybe I will. <laughs> maybe I will. Okay, so we are gathered together uh, today, Wolf, in the sight of Otis the rabbit, your rabbit, who will come up later, to record a an episode about the favourite. So, Wolf, you have a question that you normally ask me at the beginning of uh, every episode, which is... Why did you pick this film? That is a great question. 
Well, there are three reasons, really. First of all, it sounded like an absolute blast. Uh, a mix of period drama, comedy, sharp dialogue, you know, boldly drawn characters. And I watched it a few years ago, and I think when it came out, and can't really remember much of it. So I thought, well, that, you know, reviewed like a bit of a hoot. It's a fascinating period of history. My impression is it's not very widely covered in at any level, really. You know, Queen Anne is therefore a much underrated figure, which is my third reason. I wanted to see how they treated her uh, in the film because she gets, a, I think she gets a, a, a wildly poor press relative to her talents and her motivations and her strength of character. So that is why I chose the film. Mm. Very interesting. See, I assumed you remembered how much you enjoyed it the first time. No. Which is what I thought you told me from when you watched it. Maybe I did. My memory actually is that I found it a little difficult. And to be honest, Wolf, I'm not going to lie to you, I found it a little difficult this time. Okay? Interesting. Okay. So, shall I tell you what the film is about? Just a quick summary for everybody who may or may not know it. Yes. This is a 2018 film uh, that's directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. Uh, he also did three films, I think, in particular got mentioned, which I've never heard of, but you're going to know all about. Dogtooth, mm. The Lobster, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Were they good movies, Wolf? Uh, very good movies. I'm not as much of a fan of Killing of a Sacred Deer. Right. But that's just me. Okay. Um, I think it's possible that his style is starting to... Um, irritate me right? Um, over the years. But yeah, I remember going to see The Lobster in like 2000... No, going to watch Dogtooth in 2010 and not knowing anything about it. Yeah. And it was viscerally shocking. Right. Um, yeah, there was a sequence... Uh, it's all out of context, so it sounds terrible, and I guess it still is, um, where a guy chases a cat with some garden shears. Right. Um, terrifying okay. stuff and the, the whole cinema was just like uh, there weren't many people in there there weren't many people in there but everyone was just uh i don't know why i'm laughing that sounds very funny sorry shocking it's shocking yes it, um he also did a film called alps which i watched a bit of at uni they are they are very good i once got caught naked with a cat actually just thinking about chasing a cat with a pair of shears i'm thinking we used to live live in a place where the cats all over the place they kept on coming into our garden and one of them kept on getting in the house somehow i don't know why so in the middle of the night i had to go down and let the bloody cat out and for some reason somebody turned up at the door there i was naked because i was sleeping at that time in the buff i don't anymore gentle listener well because you know i was young and beautiful now i'm old and ugly and the door i opened the door and there was this person and i was naked with a cat over my genitals I mean, it really was not a good look, okay? It, it's like your favourite film, Notting Hill. You're kind of... <laughs> that's what that's reminding me yeah, of. It's a bit like that. Actually, it was more like the full Monty, to be honest. Anyway, mm. uh, there we go. Moving on. Uh, why did I tell that anecdote? Am I getting on? Anyway, so it won 10 Oscar nominations. And Olivia Colman, uh, who is Queen Anne, won Best Actress. Uh, it won seven BAFTAs. Um, it was written by Deborah Davis, I think, in way back in 1990, and a chap called Tony McNamara. Uh, Sarah Churchill is the favourite in question, or one of the favourites in question, and she's played mm -hmm. by Rachel Weisz. Then there's Abigail Masham, 
who is the other favourite, who is Emma Stone. Then there are some sort of blokes who are a bit peripheral, really, but there's Robert Harley, who was Nicholas Holt. Uh, the Prime Minister Godolphin, they didn't have Prime Ministers then. Godolphin was James Smith and Marlborough, England's only uh, significant general, by uh, who played by Mark Gattis. Much of the shooting was done at Hatfield House, which is a giant of delight, a fantastic, beautiful place. The story is essentially about three women and a struggle for power. Well, you tell me what the film's about, Wolf. I mean, mm. just, you know, what is the core thing? In the way that, you know, Jaws isn't about a shark, what is this film really about? I always hate this question. Yes, I hate it too, actually. Because you, you have to try and be intelligent, don't you? You know, you can't duck it. You know, you can't just say, well, it's about the favourites. You know, whack, whack, oops. Go. No pressure. Well, yeah, pressure. So, yes. So on one level, it's just a fairly kind of obvious um critical satire of the monarchy, um, government, and the ruling classes. Very good at the ruling but, classes thing. Mm -hmm. We're going to mention oranges later, aren't we? And then I think, um, I guess, because you've already talked about the power struggle, it's kind of more to do with, or the thing that I take from it the most, is the kind of self-destructiveness of being in a toxic relationship. I was thinking about the quote early on where it kind of opens with this exchange, um, love has limits. And then the response is, it should not. And I think the film is all about what that limit is and these characters pushing each other to kind of find that limit and then being unable to kind of retract before they go over it and the kind of damaging implications that that kind of competitive uh, and manipulative love um, has. Well, I think that's an extremely intelligent answer. Uh, I mean, you know, I couldn't even compete with that. I thought it was a um, a struggle, a story of ambition, struggle for power, and as you say, uh, within a the danger of tight institutional closed worlds. Yeah, I mean, it is that as well. Better answer. It's about a shark, essentially. A shark at Hatfield House. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Very good. So the story is this: uh, three mm -hmm. women. Um, it is also a tragic tale of how a person, Anne, is sacrificed to the ambition of two other people to a degree, I think. We join around 1704 when Sarah Churchill, who is, or, yeah, who is already by that stage the wife of the Duke of Marlborough, Duchess of Marlborough, I think, and she reigns supreme as Anne's confidant and backroom advisor based on a shared love and experience of over 20 years. And then into this world comes an interloper, Abigail Hill, and she is desperate to have a bit of power too because she's got a, a sort of gentlewoman's background but none of the cash. And it's kind of the story about how this pair fight over the decaying person and personality of the Queen and how that ends for them all. So that's a sort of broad brush. So should we mm -hmm. talk about the film as a film? Yeah, what did you think of it? Uh, I thought it was very good, but slightly uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Oh, by the way, in terms of ratings, yes, uh, the critics absolutely loved it. So Rotten Tomatoes, the critics give it 93%. The public were kind of keen, 70%, but not massively keen, which I always think is very interesting. I always think the difference between the critic and the audience is very interesting. The critics feel we should be liking this. It's a work of art, darling, sort of thing. And I mean, it is quite challenging, and I think it's deliberately challenging. 
and it knows the audience that is kind of going to come and watch this film. And I don't think it has any intention of giving them the film that they set out to watch. Yes. But I do think that regardless of how much some members of the audience disliked the film and still do, there seems to be this general respect and reverence for what Olivia Coleman does. And that, that yeah. kind of seems to shine through in any interpretation of this film that it's worth viewing, even if you don't particularly like its style and how it kind of views the world for her performance. Yeah. I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And probably is the place to start that for me, even though it wasn't particularly comfortable and it's not repeat, not a standard period drama. It's got this enormous feeling of energy and ambition, innovation, weirdness and sheer excess you know, and the the performances, the main performances are all full of that same energy and panache somehow. So Olivia Coleman presents a pitiable physical and mental victim, sort of, to a degree, unable to cope with the mental stress that she's under against the background of the personal loss of 17 children over her lifetime. But she's a complicated character. She also has a lot of strengths. And she's a queen, and she's used to being a queen. So she's not just a victim uh, as well. And she plays, Olivia Coleman plays that just with such exquisite talent somehow that she may manages to prevent these very contrasting personal characteristics. Absolutely brilliant. The other characters, I think, are much more formulaic, although still very impressive. So I absolutely love Rachel Weiss in the role of Sarah Churchill. She is brutally brisk, domineering, effective, ambitions. The the scene of her shooting is the one scene actually I remembered from the favourite. So they're out there shooting, and the poor servant is chucking these birds into the air, which gets up, which all get absolutely marmaladed. And she's incredibly brisk and just businesslike. She's just great. Love it. Emma Stone is also brilliant. She manages to kid us about her true nature and intentions, kind of manages to do a sweet and innocent thing, while also obviously being devious and manipulating. At once concerned for the Queen, at the same time, ruthless. She's utterly convincing when she's revealed in her true characteristics. She's really, really good. The blokes are there to do a job, I think, really. The useless husband of Emma Stone, of uh, Abigail Masson. Uh, he's absolutely useless and it's very funny. The politicking Harley and Godolphin are quite fun too in their different ways. Actually, I'm not a fan of Nicholas Holt normally. I normally think he's very wooden, but he actually does really well, maybe because mm-hmm. his character is imbued with this dry, cynical humour. So what do you think? Who was your fave, Wolf? If you have a fave, you don't have a fave. Yeah, no, I will agree that... Uh... I think they're all doing an excellent job. And I think it's because the script is very good. It's very funny. It's very smart. The wit just kind of rolls off the page. And they're able to... It's sharper than knife, isn't it? And you can tell that they're just having so much fun. Yes. Making this. But yeah, I I can't pick anyone other than Olivia Coleman because she just has the Mm. most work to do. And it is the most complex character. And she is very funny. That's true. I mean, Rachel Weisz, I mean... I love Rachel Weisz in that, but she is much more simple. 
And which character in the film, Ruth? Ruth? <laughs> I've always wanted to do this program with, with Ruth. But as it is, I'm just utterly ruthless. Very good. Very good. So sorry. So which character, Wolf, are you rooting for? Every one of the bunnies. <laughs> Did you make Otis watch this film? Um, he watches every film, um, but it's kind of how much he pays attention is a different matter. He likes to climb I up see. in front of the TV now as if he's uh -huh. watching or lie down in front of it relaxed. But right. I'm, I'm not convinced that he's paying attention. I think that's an obvious plea for your attention, actually, to be honest. It's a very damaged bunny we're talking there. Mm, no. I'll have... No. So you're rooting for all the bunnies. Okay, that's your... Yeah, but I also think, like, as a, on a more serious answer, that it's hard to pick because the film is very good at giving them all peaks and troughs. So yeah. they all embody the kind of underdog at different points in the story. And I just naturally for kind of follow the underdog. So when it's Abigail early on, yes, you're, you're kind of rooting for Abigail to succeed and get one over on the others. Uh, and when the story changes later and Sarah is on the outs, you're kind of waiting and hoping that she'll be able to kind of get one back over Abigail. And it's fun to watch them all doing that. And yeah, uh, yeah I mean, the same goes for Harley and Godolphin. Like they're in a race and they just keep switching between first and yeah. second, first and second. Because you don't really want the enjoyment comes in the competition. So it doesn't, you don't really want one person to win. You want the competition to keep going. Well, in that, Wolf, you share a desire with the real Queen Anne, who never liked it when one of them was supreme because it meant it reduced her level of control. But we'll come to that later. Yeah. I always wonder, we always root for the underdog, don't we? I mean, who's looking out for the overdog? Surely conceptually the overdog is always the underdog because we're all rooting for the underdog and therefore that makes the overdog the underdog isn't that true uh yes thank you right so moving on it's very offbeat the whole thing the atmosphere of it is is fantastic so it keeps you on your toes and off balance all the way through the film so for just as a little example right at the beginning of the film it starts with the sight and sound of a very traditional period drama. The music is of the period. The dress is all there. The scene is very traditional. And then there's very quickly a strand of a sort of metronomic beat, which establishes, you know, off-center weirdness. And then you quickly switch, and the, the transitions are great in the, throughout the film, actually, to a destitute Abigail turning up a scene in the kitchen, which is then taken with a fisheye lens camera or something, mm -hmm. Um, from a very strange angle, um, and that gets used a few times, actually. And it adds a sort of disorienting, off-centre vibe, uh, which is, you know, just, just keeps your... You know it's not normal. You're not in a traditional period drama here, however traditional the the subject matter at certain times might be. Um, there's a duck racing scene, which is done in slow-mo, which is very, very funny. Also, very weird. The whole film never lets you settle down. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. So all of his films are weird, and they keep you slightly off-center, even if you... So that you never really feel truly grounded in the world. And it doesn't mm. doesn't happen as much in this one, but he the dialogue is usually really... is delivered uh, very stilted, and you're never kind of part of the conversation because it's being delivered so oddly all the way through. And I think that... The, the kind of discordant 
um, unsettling music and the kind of repetitive drone that it can sometimes bring adds to that, as well as, like you say, the way that it's shot. I personally think that he goes overboard in this, and the use of the fisheye lens is, I would argue, pointless. He has achieved... I've really enjoyed it. I mean, he's achieved something in that he has made you feel that way, so maybe it has worked. But I find it keeps happening, and I can't really figure out why it's happening in any meaningful Mm. way. And I already know the world is weird, and I'm on board with that. So I just find it kind of just, I don't know, it feels like a cheap yeah. a cheap trick to me. You may be right. I mean, certainly I you know, can't think of a logical reasons why particularly Fisher Islands. Um, I just enjoyed it. I also, I'm not a fan of title cards anymore. This last year no. has convinced me I do not like like chapter title cards in a film. Yeah, so just to explain to everybody, in between various sections, you get this title card with a sort of epigram of some kind. And the way that the and letters I are spaced, too, yeah. the way the letters are deliberately spaced yes. to be annoying. It was incredibly, uh, that was really annoying. And also the credits were completely illegible. Yeah. And it was impossible to read them. So I agree about that. That's That was one of the bad things I had down. Can I go back to good things? Yes. The scenes are very dark, so you know there's a certain lack of colour in a lot of it, which is probably very realistic, actually, when you have a world lit by candles. But it creates a strong feeling of this closed, hot house of a world with an outside world, world that's very diff- distant mm-hmm. and emphasises that thing you were talking about, you know, about the small institutional world. The costumes are brilliant. Churchill in particular, Sarah Churchill, switches between a kind of formal femininity and a a personal maleness. So when she's shooting, for example, she's wearing very male uh, trousers, boots, jacket sort of thing, whereas sometimes she's out there with a very sumptuous dress. The costumes work really well. I think they're not in... They don't strive for massive originality. I think the materials they used were, were modern, for example. But I love the costumes. I think they used them very well to supplement what the scene was saying. Well, it's interesting that you've mentioned the costumes because Sandy Powell did the costumes for this film and she also did the costumes for Rob Roy, which we previously mentioned. Oh, yeah. And I think that, as I said back then, she's one of the foremost kind of costume designers for period movies. Um, and I think that we'll continue to see her name crop up in all these films that we're doing. Yeah, she does a brilliant job in this film. It uses sex very boldly and this kind of... I sometimes find a bit uncomfortable. There are a few lesbian scenes which work very well to form part of the battle for Anne's favour. Honestly, they aren't particularly emotionally convincing. I don't know whether they're ever meant to, but you don't, I don't know, quite difficult to get any great emotional feeling about them. It uses crudity on various occasions, you know, plot warning. Um, There are whores when Sarah Churchill is poisoned, for example, when she's taken hostage sort of thing and that's it's very obvious abigail's wedding night is incredibly funny actually but you know it's gross um <laughs> i mean it really is a bit gross and then uh, off one there's a great line in there where olivia coleman says uh, oh i like it when she puts her tongue inside me i mean there's and there's a man masturbating in the coach i mean you know some this you know sometimes i thought whoa whoa please you know how did you find the sex? 
Um, you're younger, you're probably much more relaxed. You know, I'm all uptight. I, I think it's all important and it all serves a purpose. Like, it's setting a scene. So the coach, like, it's it's letting you know this is not the movie you think it's going to be. This yes. this world is, like, cruel and, and dirty and mm. rotten. The way that she's treated by the workers and the way that they talk. I mean, it's horrifying, but, like, when... When she's going to get lashed and the cook thinks that the she's going to be raped instead and the cook's like, please just take her out of my kitchen. You can't do that in here. Go over yeah. there. And it's it's this cruel, formidable world that you yeah. it lets you know that Abigail is going to be destroyed by it unless she can kind of overcome it. Yeah. And so it kind of gives you this sense that even if things don't work out at the end, that maybe she is still somehow better off to be this kind of manipulative character that strives to succeed and gain power. Because if you don't have power in this world, you you have nothing. And, you, and again, it comes up later, as soon as Sarah kind of gets injured and then rescued, they all just assume that she's going to have been raped. Yeah. And it's, I'm not necessarily saying that it's like smart and inventive kind of a, approach to everything. And they, they talk about it in a callous way, which is almost uh, jarring because um, we're not used to it but it, it it does convey the kind of sense of world that they want to set out for us and it's not uh voyeuristic in any way no you know we're not we're not talking here about exploiting sex scenes you know in that kind of sexual sense they are used i think you're absolutely right and it's I, a very good comment that it is emphasizing just how brutal this world is i think also this this film is not shying away from anything so why be prudish in the bedroom? Yeah. Especially because I think we're weird. I say we, I think everyone is kind of weirdly obsessed with all the little things that these monarchs and rulers and leaders get up to, yeah. but then often kind of ignore the stuff that's going on in yeah. their private chambers. And that's when they're at their, their most genuine and kind of real person. So yeah. this is that insight into kind of who Anne was or could have been. And it's just playful and fun. The, the 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 line about the tongue, the whole the whole cinema's laughing. Yes, maybe maybe awkwardly, maybe because they think it's hilarious. It's just it's just funny to hear the Queen talk yes. like that. And it's just brilliantly delivered because it's delivered in an offhand sort of way. You're not expecting it. They're not talking about sex at the time, and it's just you know it's beautifully done. It's just works really well and generally speaking the film is on occasion very funny indeed so i'm going to give you some examples see whether you find them funny so mm -hmm. she's desperate to get a job initially abigail and she's trying everything she can to do to impress the people in power sarah church and all the rest of it so suddenly in the middle of what is effectively a job interview she tries to show how great she'll be as a governess for kid by pretending to be a monster <laughs> she does a stupid monster impression and i was immediately taken back to all the stupid things I've done and said in job interviews. You know, it mm. was just incredibly incongruous and very funny. The political characters sometimes act exactly as they feel rather than st staying in the normal 18th century courtier's idiom. So when Harley is thwarted at one stage, for example, he's in front of the Queen and Sarah Churchill and Godolphin, and he, he turns around and kicks over a table in front of everybody and sort of goes, ah. Oh! It's very funny, spontaneous, and 
you know, you sympathize that every defeat suffered at school and work and all the rest of it when I saw him do it. Because that's exactly what I want to do at work a hundred times and just had to bite my lip. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just, it's, it's lovely. Uh, and it goes back to that, what you were saying, that this is, you know, this is very real. It's very, I mean, it might be, I'm sure the Harley would never have lost it like that. But, you know, that's how he's feeling. I'm absolutely sure. There's um, Abigail with her husband, Sam, when he's trying to seduce her. He comes into her room uh, and she says, looks at him and says, have you come to rape me or seduce me? And he says, horrified, I am a gentleman. Ah, rape then, she says. <laughs> and then in the middle of Parliament, one more. Oh, a couple more. Um, in Parliament, Anne gets Shanghai. She doesn't quite know mm. what to do. So she's saying, oh, 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 suddenly her script's been thrown off. And so she just goes for a dead faint and she just drops over. And it's a lovely bit of slapstick, you know, in a serious drama. And then there's one where very similar. Harley just pushes Abigail into a hole. It's just, you know, it's slapstick. Very funny. I loved the bit. And I guess the importance of so much of the comedy is because it's quite dark. It's also can be quite tragic. So you're laughing and also like anxious at the same time. Yeah. But the sequence when Anne is having one of her tantrums and there's that little boy who's like guarding the door. And um, she's like, "Are you? did you look at me? And he he's like, no, yes. I know that I, I cannot look at the queen. I'm not doing anything. Please ignore me. <laughs> and she keeps berating him and, to, and screaming, look at me, look at me. And right. as soon as he turns to look at her, she's like, don't look at me. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's just very funny. Yeah, it very it's hard funny. not to enjoy yeah. that. Or even the grossness of the eating the cake and vomiting. Yes. Because um, it's it, just so visceral. The whole thing is just so... You know, it's not holding back. And, of course, the lovely scene we mentioned about the oranges. So, you know, they're demonstrating the the decadence of this, you know, incredibly, of this court populated by incredibly rich people. And so one of them, one of the posh people takes all his clothes off, stands in a sort of little alley somewhere, and every all the other courtiers are throwing oranges at him. So you've got this naked chap clutching his genitals, a bit wobbly and, you know, not beautiful. And they're all laughing in slow-mo and chucking oranges at him. And it's just, what? You know, I haven't seen that in a film before. It's incredibly incongruous, not particularly comfortable, but it does a job of, you know, describing this incredibly closed world. Yeah, I made a note that it reminded me of Blackadder at times. <laughs> right, yes. I was, I was far kind less of... restrained than Blackadder, you know. Far less obviously, which, you know... It's... Yes, but I think it's it's the general approach to history. So in yeah. Blackadder 2 and 3, yeah. how they want to depict the Elizabethan court and then... Um, yes, that's true. Oh, God. Who does Hugh Laurie play again? Uh, what, in The Prince Regent? Yes. It's very um, funny. Yes, indeed. I mean, I take it on. It, but it's not... Com this is the thing I think about the film. I think the film is quite affectionate. And the film is quite balanced and it's not, it's not quite the scathing, um, like horrible film that it could come across. Yes. It has a lot of compassion for its characters and that comes in with the complexity of the performances. You enjoy what they're doing, but it's kind of like you can't look away, even though you're not kind of enjoying everything that's happening and it's, but it's just so compelling. And I think it just understands exactly what it's going for. 
and it wants to kind of present them in a way that we haven't seen them before, but not completely distance them from us. It almost makes them more believable and more human. I think that's absolutely right. And it leads me on to our last point, which is there is genuine emotion in this film too. There is Mm -hmm. genuine depth. So, and that's one of the things that Olivia does so well. There is genuine pathos in her situation, which really hits you hard when she talks about the bunnies and they appear in the story and you realise that she's lost 17 children and you recognise her physical and emotional vulnerability it hits really hard and it matters. Mm-hmm. It's not just a thing, you know, because people, everybody says that Queen Anne lost 17 children and, and was said without emotion, thinking about what that means to somebody to have gone through that. Yeah. And her eldest was lost. She lost when he was 11. You know, I mean, it's just a terrible thing. There's a sense of real danger for Sarah. Here she is in this situation. She absolutely relies on it. It's part of her character incredibly important to her and you feel a sense of danger about abigail so at one stage sarah says when they're shooting oh we'll make a killer out of you yet and we all think well look she's a killer already sarah you're just not recognizing it Hmm. Uh, there's a real sense of fury and despair about the outcome of that power struggle this matters to the people concerned it's not just a game you know, even though they're incredibly rich and privileged, even though Sarah Churchill can just go away and live in Blenheim Palace, you know, um, it's really painful how that struggle for power turns out for both of them. Yeah, the ending is very depressing. Yes. And um, you know that no one has come out of it well at all. Um, and you also have seen what you could argue it doesn't have much impact, but you have seen over the course of this power struggle um, the a change of political party dominance within the country as a result of the battle between Abigail and Sarah. Yeah. So you could then argue that there are like larger kind of national consequences for just these few people in this court having this battle. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the, uh, the toxic na- nature of uh, courts and favourites. So um, I... I firmly intend to have a have a competition with the history of England at some stage, people voting for their favourite favourite, because you can have a bit of fun. But at base, you're getting national policy influenced by these household struggles and personalities. You know, and everybody, historians talk about these great trends and movements and all the rest of it. Well, some of it's a lot more basic than that. So I had a question for you, because I don't know about this. How commonplace were favourites? And what is their role usually? Oh, that's quite a good question. So there are some very famous favourites that we know about very much. And I suppose one question is, what is a favourite as opposed to a, you know, a senior advisor? Would you call William Cecil, who's incredibly influential in Elizabeth's reign? Was he a favourite? He was certainly very powerful, but he was a serious administrator, as was his son, Salisbury. But you get people like, I don't know, the Duke of Buckingham, whose influence actually is extremely corrosive. It leads to all kinds of corruption in Ireland. It leads to some daft policy decisions. And, you know, it's his, the strength of his relationship with James forms decisions not on a rational basis necessarily, just on the whims of this individual. There's Piers Gaveston and, uh, with Edward II and uh, the dispensers. So you, you, 
because the in a world ruled by courts and individuals where all the power emanates from one individual it's it can get very toxic indeed so they're not it doesn't happen every reign most but um weak monarchs tend to encourage favorites because they are subject to factional fighting in court mm. are they usually is there usually a romantic suggestion or connection as well well quite often i was wondering whether one would make that so we can talk now about whether there's any suggestion that anne is a lesbian or not so interestingly enough actually the rumors about anne's sexuality are probably derived from sarah churchill herself so sarah hmm. churchill later in life uh, plot spoiler is ousted from power and she gets very bitter about it and one of the things accusations she makes is that Anne is is a lesbian so it's mm. not entirely without foundation essentially but most historians uh, don't think it is the trouble is of course you never really know i mean even james the 1st for example and what is you know what are we talking about here we tend to over focus on the physical act the point is buckingham and james the 1st loved each other probably Anne and Sarah Churchill loved each other and had a deeply emotional, personal relationship. Edward II and Piers Gaveston loved each other. So whether there's physical sex involved or not, is not necessarily that important. Mm -hmm. What's important is the favourite is always utterly dependent on the favour of the monarch. And the monarch is emotionally dependent on the favourite. So you've got this very, very difficult. And as a favourite, if you lose the favour of the monarch, that's it. It's all over. You know, all the basis, entire basis of your power and influence disappears overnight, mm -hmm. as it does with other of James I's favourites, like Robert Carr, for example. Interesting. Anyway, so should we rate the... I mean, there were some things I didn't enjoy a vast amount. Mm -hmm. So I suppose... All the emotion somehow, all the complexity is focused, I think, on Anne. There's a little bit of complexity with Sarah Churchill and Abigail Masham, but not that much. The blokes aren't really very 3D, but I think if they were, it would just get in the way a bit. I don't know. I mean, I, I thought it was great. What did you think of the film generally? No, I do agree, uh, kind of carrying on from your point. By being so stylized and so clear in its vision... You, you do lose something mm. and you have – it also – it can be quite tiring over the full two hours to kind of keep living in this world, which is quite full on. Yeah. I, I mean, I really liked it both times that I've watched it. I think maybe I'd kind of forgotten how good it was. And to me, it I do think maybe it's my favorite of his films right. where he's kind of pushed his style into this kind of new genre and it, it just kind of – melds brilliantly and gives us this film that I never anticipated or kind of would have I don't know it just gave me something I didn't know that I wanted and I think it's I think it's very good and I think it's nice and unique and so I would I would really recommend it great we've talked we've talked way too long so shall we move on to the history yeah first of all we'll take a very short break mm -hmm. to hear a word from our sponsors if we have any and then we'll be right back 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back, everybody. So now we're going to talk about the history, and I'm going to try and make it quick, Wolf, because we have delighted our listeners long enough. I'm sure you'll agree. My first question is, if you were to pick if you were Queen Anne, just for a moment, imagine that, and you were going to pick one of those advisors, which would you pick? Uh, it's Sarah Churchill. Sarah Churchill. She's the best one. Absolutely right. I'd go for that too. And would you be, would you have been a Whig or a Tory? I don't know how much you know about the Whigs and Tories. I'll be honest, I found, I guess because I don't know a lot, uh, if anything, most of the film are like, what is the difference? Right. I can't really tell. Also, the film... The film does tell me that there is essentially no difference between the two because I think there's a really interesting scene where they're – I think it's that one you talked about where Harvey loses his kind of power play and Godolphin is like, oh, do go easy on him. Um, And they're like – they've just been like hanging out on a a sofa, like lounging around, and they've just kind of had a casual chat and they've got the answer. And then the very next time you see them, they're in court screaming at each other the entirety of parliament like up on their feet these like baying crowds like from two sides fighting and you know that these two men just hang out and race ducks and throw oranges together and i find it interesting that they kind of do not that what they're showing in the public is not what they're doing in private and in private they they are kind of one and the same with just marginally different views i think there's probably some truth some truth in that in the sense that these are all part of a the period is often thought about as a kind of oligarchy where you've got these very privileged people sort of circulating around each other. But there is a very real difference between Whig and Tory, which doesn't come across. So mm-hmm. the Tories traditionally supported James II and wanted the monarchy to be supreme and carry on in power and are very conformist in terms of religion, whereas mm-hmm. the Whigs tended to be much more tolerant religiously but were very much for William the Third and his the, and the Glorious Revolution, as it was called, so there is a very real difference between them. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really come across, and you're quite right. On the other hand, they also play at an anachronism to make life easier, which is that there's no political parties at the time, and that's probably why what you're saying comes from that. What you have is some people who pro- who gravitate towards Whig and Tory, but a lot about your political allegiance actually is also formed around patronage so there's an enormous level of patronage that today we would describe as corruption where you know you have to go to court and get jobs in order to become rich and there's no prime minister really basically the queen chooses her ministers parliament doesn't choose the ministers and what queen anne wanted and actually was like was she wanted a balance of power that she could exercise her power in if one of those two became too dominant then she lost control and she didn't like that because actually she wanted control, which we'll come on to in a minute. 
So they play it anachronism, but they don't really bring up the difference because that's just not the point of the movie somehow, even though it forms a backdrop. Mm -hmm. So I, I found myself sort of admiring and disapproving in equal measure. So they said very clearly, actually, the, the makers, that they weren't attached to English history, so felt free to be fast and loose with it, and, but then claimed there was a fundamental truth to the big events. And there kind of was. I didn't think it was terrible. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of wild supposition going on about the characters and how they behave to make them exciting. You know, the Queen didn't have any bunnies. But, you know, I think you accept that quite early on, that this is the kind of movie you're in. The language and the conversation is very modern. It doesn't feel in any way 18th century. Anne's husband isn't there. You know, he was very important to her indeed and very important to her rift with Sarah Churchill. Mm. But you can see why they got, got rid of him yeah. because that would have been one strong emotional relationship too many mm -hmm. for the film to bear. But it's a major historical accuracy lack because... That relationship and when he dies was very important to Anne because, you know, they're, they're very close and suddenly that is taken away and Sarah Churchill doesn't react with great grace hmm. when he goes. And in fact, she gets at him and gets at her and says, you're being too emotional, you need to just get over it and move on, which, you know, is not sympathetic towards Anne at all. But the big things are there. You know, there is this struggle between... Wig and Tory, and it's, and it's very much about war and taxation and Churchill on the continent and wars of succession and so on. So that is there, and that's reasonably accurate. But there's, no, there's a lot missing, which is particularly interesting about the period. So there's no Jacobitism, there's no... Religion is incredibly important at the time in terms of Catholicism or not Catholicism and so on. So that's very important. Sarah Churchill was indeed a massively influential favourite and very like the character, I think. You know, energetic, fiercely intelligent, politically very committed, domineering, stubborn. And in her relationship with Anne, her real relationship, she just goes way too far. You know, she does indeed threaten to publish Anne's letters when her position at court is challenged. Abigail Hill, later Masson, does come in and does cause chaos. So, and people talk about Abigail. Abigail is also quite politically committed. She wants to be a real player. They're both, both she and Sarah Churchill were real, really, you know, significant people with opinions. They weren't just playing a game of power. They wanted to influence strategy. And so they both do that. And people like Jonathan Swift, for example, you know, of Gulliver's Travels fame, writes satires about Abigail, you know, desperate to get rid of Abigail out of the picture because he's worried about the political influence mm. that she's having. So these are serious people. And actually, you don't get that impression with Abigail, I don't think. You get, you know, she's all about power in the film. Actually, she's a good deal more complex and a good deal broader in reality. Mm. So I think there's, there's quite a lot of truth in it. I think Tony McNamara's summary that the big events are there is right. The framework is okay. You know, it does feel authentic as well as feeling weird and obviously odd. It's an interesting combination. And in a way, it just gives free reign to how those relationships might have played out if the world was slightly different, you know. 
So it's not a great historical record, but nor is it terrible. I think its worst crime, if crime is the word, is how they treat Anne. And I understand why this is a film. But it's part of that thing. Actually, Queen Anne was a very strong person who faced a lot of pain. But she did she did need she did have a lot a big emotional requirement. Needy, if that's the right phrase. Her relationship with Sarah Churchill was very old, you know, since well before she was queen. So it was based on, and you get a little bit of that through the Mrs. Morley, Mrs. Freeman thing, which was actually a thing. But, and I, I think the film fails to really make that work. You know, you don't really get the film. You think Sarah's being manipulative, and she was pretty manipulative, but they were also very close indeed. They went through a lot together. But Anne always had an opinion about strategy. She was never the the blithering idiot that comes across when she's in Parliament and goes into a dead faint. She knew what she wanted about strategy. She was very conscientious, very hardworking. She wanted to maintain control, didn't want to have political control taken away from her. And because of the film, she needs to be shown, her vulnerability needs to be increased, I think, for the drama. And therefore, it just once again, it's another film that doesn't tell us how impressive Anne was in terms of her intentions and quality, I think, as a leader. Yeah, that that does come across. The other thing about the parliamentary thing I forgot to say, which I was going to say, is basically what you've got is a lot of independence. You've got some very committed Whigs, probably some very committed Tories at the end. There's no party structure. In the middle, you've got a whole load of gentry squires who come up to town and enjoy sitting around drinking claret in the clubs and go to Parliament. And um, they can move, you know, from one place to another. And patronage is often what holds groupings together, not party structure. You don't really think about a prime minister until Walpole turns up in sort of the 1720s. So, any thoughts about history? Um, I have none. Excellent. The, the listeners will be pleased. That means we'll finish on time. So, should we, yes, should we do the ratings then? Uh, rating the history, I kind of went for a six. Okay. It's a bit of a cop out there because clearly there are holes all over the place and no, that, that's things fair not covered. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't completely ridiculous. It, it was all right. What about the quality as a film? Uh, I put an eight. Right. I did it between an eight and a nine. I mean, it's, um, it's an extraordinary film, you know, that, and you have to mark it high for that. You know, it's mm. very... Very assured, very accomplished. You know, I didn't always enjoy it, but it's a very good movie. It's a, it's a bit of quality. So eight or nine, yeah. I'm I'm pleased you liked it so much. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just I felt I was in, you know, something special. I don't know quite how to explain that, and I didn't always, in you know, again, didn't always enjoy it, but. Wow, this is an experience. This is panache, confidence, innovation, ambition. Great, you know. Yeah, it, I mean, Good. it is a breath of fresh air in kind of like biopics of of monarchs. Yes, quite. I mean, biopics are dire, generally speaking. I mean, I watched the thing on Freddie Mercury that everybody says is great. <laughs> really, I mean, it was all right, but you know, biopics can get. T- 
terribly worthy. Anyway, great. Okay, so we're done. Yes. We said all we're going to say. Yep. Great. Thank you very much, then, everybody. So, everybody, if, why don't you come along to the Facebook group and give your opinion and give your view? I hope you will either all watch it or be inspired so to do if you haven't seen it already. And next time we are going to do In Cold Blood. Right there, wrong. Mm. And that will be Wolf mm. trying to mm, support mm, his mm. position of bringing true crime into the equation again, actually. Second time. Anyway. Help. Okay. Help. So we will see you all then. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Are you not entertained? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.